You are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the Gospel of St. Mark. Dr. George has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering Mark chapter 6 through chapter 7, verse 23. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the chapters of the Second Gospel from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Mark begins chapter 6 of his Gospel by recording an incident wherein Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth to teach. St. Mark writes, Leaving that district, he went to his hometown. He began teaching in the synagogue, and most of them were astonished when they heard him. They said, Where did the man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been granted him? And these miracles that are worked through him. This is the carpenter, surely, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Jude and Simon. His sisters, too, are they not here with us? And they would not accept him. We begin by reminding ourselves what the Church has always taught in her tradition, that references to the brothers and sisters of Jesus in Scripture are really an Old Testament expression that points to close relatives or kins of of Jesus. Jesus, in fact, did not have blood brothers and sisters in the sense that Mary, Mary, who was forever virgin, did not give natural birth to any other children but only to Jesus, the Son of God. In looking at this, though, we find it interesting how Jesus' own family viewed him, how his own community viewed him. There is something in us whereby when we look at the seemingly ordinary in the world, we cannot see or we do not have the faith to believe in the marvelous works of God through what appears to us to be common, ordinary, something we are accustomed to. And because we lack faith, we cannot discern the presence of God among us and the power of God working in our midst. We tend to look at appearances. We look at the world and what God is doing in the world in a very natural way. And so we miss the power of God. We miss the supernatural. We look at appearances, but God looks at the heart, as he says. If we look, for example, back into the Old Testament at the story of David, who is a prefigurement of Jesus. Now, in choosing David, God sends Samuel to anoint one of the sons of Jesse. And Samuel goes with this mission. He knows that he must find the anointed one of God. So he goes to Jesse and asks him to bring forth his sons, and he brings the seven sons one after another. And he is looking upon them, and he sees the fact that they're mature, that they're strong, that they're upright, and he looks at them wondering if this is the anointed one of God. But God tells Samuel that he does not see as human beings see. He tells them, no, it is not this one, it is not that one, it is not the other one. That there is another a boy, the youngest of all, the shepherd in the field, this is David, the prefigurement of Christ, and he asked that he be brought forth. 
God tells Samuel, God does not see as human beings see. They look at appearances, but God looks at the heart. God is already telling us in David, as a preparation for Jesus, that when God chooses his instruments, that he conforms the heart of that instrument to himself. And that is a preparation for that person to be God's chosen instrument. What is it about David that makes him a powerful instrument for God? First of all, he is childlike. There is a simplicity. He is a shepherd boy. He is the youngest, and that is no accident because Christ is the youngest, so to speak, of the sons of God. All the other elder brothers would be those sons of God of the Old Testament. It is the eighth one. Eight is a number of the resurrection. It is the eighth and final, the son who is the shepherd boy, so to speak, whom Samuel will anoint. He is humble. He loves God. He has purity of heart. God works his marvels through the pure of heart, through the childlike. He anoints those and makes them like himself. It is David who is then chosen and who is placed in the service of Saul. Now we know that the Israelites had been in battle against Goliath and the Philistines for a period of time. And David comes forward and he is called by God. He is actually compelled to fight Goliath. He has this sense within him that he will be given victory over Goliath through the power of God. Now, Saul is only too happy to hear this because the Israelites don't have the strength to defeat the Philistines. Goliath is a kind of figure of the evil one who looms up large, who is powerful, strong, seemingly invincible against the Israelites, the people of God. Saul tells David to take his helmet and breastplate and sword and to take them to himself so that he can go into battle and fight Goliath. So David obediently puts them on, but they're too heavy for him. He can't walk in them. They don't fit him. David is not meant to fight Goliath and the army of Goliath with the armor of a worldly king. It is in his simplicity, his purity of heart, his faith in God, where he has his strength to defeat Goliath. When David goes down to the battlefield, his own brothers are down there, his family members are there, and how do they respond to him? His eldest brother looks at him and says, Why have you come down here? Is this to say, You're a young boy, you're a shepherd boy. He says, Who have you left in charge of the sheep? He is saying to him, You're too young, you don't belong here. You don't look like a warrior. What do you expect to do here on the battlefield? The brothers respond to David in a way very much like the family of Jesus. The relatives of Jesus respond to him. They see his smallness, so to speak. They see a human person, but not the divinity. They do not have faith in the power of God working through what is seemingly ordinary and simple through the humanity of Christ. So David then goes forward to challenge Goliath. 
And when Goliath looks on him in his simplicity, he says, Am I a dog for you to come after me with sticks? In other words, give me someone who can be a real competitor with me. Give me something real to fight. He has scorn and contempt for him because he thinks this is not even going to be a battle with something this small. In his arrogance, in his false sense of power, he sees David as nothing but a dog fighting him with sticks. He has this huge armor. Well, David picks up five smooth stones from the riverbed. And with one of these, he flings the stones. And there are many beautiful ways that we can look at the images of this scene, and beginning with the five nails of Christ. But with one of these stones, the giant, Goliath, is struck dead. And it's a surprising victory, because from all appearances, a shepherd boy has conquered Goliath and the entire Philistine army. This is a prefigurement of what Jesus will do in conquering the evil one by going into battle. The church says what was visible in his earthly life, Jesus' earthly life, leads to, it points to the invisible mystery of his divine sonship and his redemptive mission. We must never forget, as St. Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, that in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And it's part of the mystery of why, in Christ's own lifetime in his public ministry, and even now in the life of the church, in the sacramental life of the church, for example, people, not only the world, but Christians themselves, the family of God, the relatives of Jesus, look upon the marvels of God in our midst, the presence of God among us, and cannot see anything except what is merely ordinary. They do not see the power of the divinity. The more spiritual we are, the less the world understands us. But the more spiritual we are, the more powerful we are as instruments of God. We must also learn, in regard to seeing life and God at work in life around us, that we cannot see the power and mystery of God with merely natural eyes. Yes, God works through what is natural. He works through the ordinary events of daily life and people around us, people that we know, that we live among, that we grew up with, our own brothers and sisters. But once that person becomes configured to God and grows in holiness and God is using that person as an instrument, There is even a tendency in us sometimes to want to be dismissive of that person. It's like we can look upon, for example, an ordained priest of God, and we have a tendency to see merely the humanity, the imperfections. It's like, I've known this person since he was a boy. That may well be true, but he is a priest configured ontologically to Jesus Christ. Our eyes look upon a person we have known for many years. But the power of God is at work in that priest. The invisible mystery of God is present, is made present in the person of that priest configured to Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful mystery. Christ himself, who is God, who is divine, a divine person, suffered this in his own lifetime. 
He is not a human creature as we are, but God himself suffered at the hands of his own family and the people of God, the Jews, who looked upon him and could see nothing other than the carpenter's son, the son of Mary, that they had known for so many years. As St. Mark tells us, Jesus could work no miracle there except that he cured a few sick people by laying hands on them. He was amazed at their lack of faith, their lack of faith in God, in the person of Christ, the person of Christ as the Son of God. The second question of the lesson deals with Herod's response to John the Baptist, his knowledge of John the Baptist, his opinion of him, and then what he decides to do concerning John the Baptist in the end. And it's very interesting, St. Mark begins the account by telling us that when Jesus comes on the scene, because John the Baptist has been beheaded by Herod, everyone is wondering who he is, and Herod in particular is haunted by the person of Jesus because he is powerful in his miracles and in his preaching. And so others say perhaps he is Elijah, perhaps he is another of the prophets, and they wonder, but Herod says, it is John whose head I cut off, he has risen from the dead. Now what he recognizes without being aware is that it is the spirit of Jesus speaking and at work in John the Baptist, and it is this same spirit which he then encounters in the person of Jesus. And this is true for all the others too. And he is afraid of this. Why? Because his conscience continues to speak to him about the fact that he beheaded John the Baptist. What is interesting is that St. Mark records that Herod was in awe of John. It says he was in awe of John, knowing him to be a good and upright man. This is interesting to us. The Gospels record that Herod was attracted to John the Baptist and even to Jesus, and Pilate himself was attracted to Jesus, was drawn by him. In fact, all four Gospels record that Pilate believed Jesus to be an innocent man. Herod recognized in John the Baptist truth and goodness, and it is because his conscience was at work in him telling him to recognize what is true and good. It says that Herod even gave John the Baptist his protection. When he heard him speak, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. Because we are made for the truth and for goodness, we are naturally drawn to it whenever we encounter it, especially to a superlative degree, in another person. He was able to know in his conscience, able to recognize the uprightness, the truth, the goodness in John the Baptist. Scripture records with regard to Herod and Pilate and with regard to other people in other places throughout the Old and New Testament, God is speaking to us about conscience. Scripture tells us of how people knew and recognized the innocence, the truth, the goodness, the wisdom of certain people that God places in their midst. And in spite of this, They act contrary to what they know deep within themselves, in their conscience, in their heart. Herod beheads John the Baptist. He has him put to death. He hands Jesus over later to Pilate to be put to death. And Pilate 
against his own conscience, because the scripture records he knew Jesus to be an innocent man. His wife even had a dream, which was divine providence, and went to him and said, don't lay your hands on this man. Don't do anything to him. God was speaking to him right up to the very end. He goes against his own conscience, and he puts Jesus to death. Now, why do we do this? We act against our conscience because of the sin that is within us, because of pride, because of vanity, because of fear of other people and the power of other people to harm us or destroy us or to take power away from us. There are all sorts of reasons. And we go against our own conscience. We must never, we can never go against our conscience without condemning ourselves. Conscience is, as John Henry Cardinal Newman has said, is the aboriginal voice of Christ in us. It is the natural law written in our heart. We all have it. We are created in God's image and likeness. We are all made this way. We are made for the truth, for goodness. We are made, therefore, to know it. We recognize it, and we naturally are attracted to it. We are not only attracted to it, but we want to align ourselves to it. God has created us this way. We want to be good. We want to be truth and honesty. We want to have integrity. We are made this way. We cannot act against this without condemning ourselves. Because by acting against what our conscience tells us in clear matters regarding good and evil, we actually put ourselves to death. We condemn ourselves. We kill the truth that is in us by rejecting it, denying it, suffocating it. And there are terrible consequences for this because what happens is we dull and deaden our conscience more and more so that we render ourselves less and less capable of hearing quickly, easily, and promptly that voice of Christ. The more we choose sin, particularly grave sin, serious sin, the more we steep ourselves in this, this paralysis, this void, this inability to hear this voice. As St. Paul says at the beginning of his letter to the Romans, because they did not acknowledge God, acknowledge the truth, the goodness within them, God handed them over to their own wickedness and depravity because we have free will. So we can choose to deaden or deafen that voice within us. Sometimes people say that if we encounter horrible sin or wickedness in the world, we will hear people sometimes casually say, that person has no conscience. We say that, but it's an incorrect statement. We all have conscience. We are created with it in us. We are created with this natural ability to know good from evil. Now, our consciences can be erroneous. They can be uninformed, misinformed, badly formed. For this reason, people don't have an argument to say simply, well, I was just following my conscience. It seemed okay to me, so I went ahead and did this. Because of the sin in us, we have a tendency to push away from ourselves the truth when that truth calls us to a standard of holiness that will require a death to sin within ourselves. We don't want to have to go there. We don't want to have to embrace the conversion of heart that God is calling us to. So we can refuse to listen to the truth in very subtle ways in our lifetime. 
but our consciences can be badly formed through ignorance of Christ and the gospel, through the bad example of others, especially the bad example of people who claim that they are Christians or who claim to know Christ, through enslavement to our own passions and wounds. We can become a little oblivious or there can be these strong driving passions, this sinfulness in us that we sort of allow to to move forward and have their way with us. And we don't take pause and consider things in the truth and goodness of God. Thanks for listening to Dr. George on Real Presence Radio. For more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. Up next, Dr. George will be continuing, Conscience is the voice of Christ in us, and then she will be moving into, The miracles of the loaves of fish prefigure the Eucharist. There is also such a thing as a mistaken notion of the autonomy of conscience. People who say, it's my own sense of what's good. We are not arbiters of the truth. God, who is truth and goodness, has created us out of his truth and goodness. His stamp, his imprint, his image is in us. And we do not decide or determine what is truth and what is good. That is ordered by God. We share in God's truth and goodness. We participate in it. And to the degree that we do, we embrace life and embrace it fully. But we do not create truth and decide what it is. So this matter of conscience is something very important as to how we go through life and whether we thrive or not. The church tells us that deep within his conscience, man discovers a law which he has not laid upon himself, but which he must obey. And even in this, there are many people who want to reject this or rear up. It's like a law in me that I must obey. Yes, to have happiness, to have peace, to have life. When a man listens to his conscience, the prudent man hears God speaking. We hear the voice of Christ himself when, as Cardinal Newman says, the aboriginal voice, he is speaking of a voice that was present from the very beginning in man, something which is natural to us, innate in us, inherent in us. And this voice cannot be eradicated. God has created us this way for our own protection, for our guarantee. That is why we cannot say that person has no conscience. It is true that people's consciences can be dulled or deadened, But we cannot completely obliterate the conscience so that it no longer exists in a person. It can become very dulled, yes. But the conscience, the voice of God, remains in us to the end of our lives in spite of the evil we commit as a pledge of hope and promise of God's mercy. That voice is there reminding us of the fact that we must acknowledge our sin We must repent of our sin and seek forgiveness in Christ. And so God stays with us. It's as if there is a little voice in us reminding us that there is something, perhaps something terrible in our past that we must go back and revisit. We must claim it as our own. We must repent of that. We must hate that evil, hand it over to God and ask for his forgiveness. When the prodigal son returns home to the father, what is the first thing that he does? He says to the father, 
I have sinned against heaven and against you. I do not deserve to be called your son. Treat me as your slave, as your servant. What is the response of the father? Mercy and forgiveness. He prepares a feast for the son. He is rejoicing that the son who is lost has been found, has come home, has asked the father's forgiveness, has acknowledged the sin, the wrong, and in doing that, he has given evidence of his repentance and conversion of heart. And this is what God is doing when he speaks to us in our conscience all the way to the end of our lives. There are people who we hear about deathbed conversions. We hear about deathbed declarations of evil, that there is something on a person's soul that they need to get out of them before they pass through death because it's something that they possess that clings to them and they want to be rid of this. There is a fear, if you will, because as St. John says in his letter, fear implies punishment. But fear, the fear and the sense of guilt is God's protection. It's a protective measure put in us. But St. John says, whoever is afraid has not come to the perfection of love. It is a servile kind of love, but not a filial love, where the son loves the father because he honors the Father. There is a sense in the world that when we experience guilt, that there is something wrong about this. There are people who say, you know, the Catholic Church is all about guilt. It just wants to make people feel guilty because it's always talking about sin and wrongdoing. And to call a person or the church guilt-ridden is not to understand what a well-formed conscience is about. When our conscience becomes well-formed, we become very sensitive to sin. We begin in our conversion to God by first turning away from grave sin, and then later, that's not enough. We want to get rid of all sin. We want to be good as Jesus is good, holy as Jesus is holy. And pretty soon, all the other little things, we want to get rid of those. Our consciences become very sensitive. We become sensitive to sin. That guilt is actually a great deal of grace at work in us. So to talk about this this business of guilt is to actually have a very poor grasp of reality, of the reality of sin, of the holiness of God, and of the great service our conscience is to us in this life. As I said, it is a protective gift that God has placed within us. Now, Herod and Pilate, along with certain other figures in Scripture, reject the clearer judgment of their conscience. The Church tells us in defining conscience, it is a judgment of reason whereby we recognize the moral quality of a concrete act we are about to perform, we are in the process of performing, or we have already completed We have an uneasiness about something that we have already done or we are about to do. Now, in talking about conscience with regard to Herod or Pilate or anyone else in Scripture, Judas Iscariot, for example, we must be careful that we never judge their souls. We do not know the judgment of their souls. The Church has never said specifically that these people or any others are in fact in hell. We don't know. We don't know how. The mercy of God may have worked in their lives in the final moments as they drew their last breaths. Nevertheless, 
God teaches us a great deal about conscience and listening to our conscience and the rejection of conscience in persons, in historical figures in Scripture. This is what we take our time to look at. In point of fact, Herod makes a decision that we know is contrary to what he believed about John the Baptist. This is why when they start speaking of this person named Jesus, he's haunted. He is haunted, he says, I think as John the Baptist, raised from the dead. It is as if there is the spirit coming back to get him, to lay hold of him. Now, of course, it is the spirit of Christ reaching out for Herod. The conscience is that call to conversion, and it is a reminder of the mercy of God that is there in our midst for the taking if we would just embrace it, if we would reach out and embrace it. He doesn't do this, and in fact, St. Luke records in his gospel a number of instances where Herod, in spite of having chosen gravely wrong things, that he continued to choose more and more so. He says in his gospel after John the Baptist told Herod that it was wrong to take his brother's wife, then Herod added to all the other crimes he committed by adding a further crime, by shutting John the Baptist up in prison. In spite of this, we still don't know the judgment of his soul. But there is a great deal to be learned about the service of our conscience as we go through life and as we are confronted with decisions. And when we get this uneasy feeling about something, it's the Spirit of Christ speaking in us. We need to pay attention to that. We have a grave obligation always in our lifetime to seek the truth, to know the truth. Take, for example, in the field of medicine, all of the new ethics that have to keep pace with medicine and the new technologies and so on. We have an obligation because we don't always know. What does God think about doing this or doing that? We look to the church, the voice of Christ speaking in the church and the teachings, and there we find ethics laid out for us so that we can form our consciences according to the mind and heart of Christ. We have an obligation. We can't put our head in the sand and go through life saying, I don't want to hear what the church has to say about embryonic cell research. I don't want to hear what the church has to say about contraception. I don't want to hear what the church has to say about same-sex union. No, that is to act contrary to our conscience even in that. We cannot, we cannot deny or push away from ourselves the truth when God is constantly having us encounter it in the prophets around us, in John the Baptist. Herod listened to him. He was perplexed by many things he said, but he was attracted by his words and by his wisdom. We know that when Herod and Pilate met Jesus, they were attracted to him. They were compelled by the wisdom and the strength of what he said and what he did in his actions. God sends us prophets in our midst. But we often react the way Jesus says of prophets at the beginning of chapter 6. The prophet is despised in his own country, among his own relations, in his own home. The closer our hearts and minds are to Christ, the less the world recognizes the power of God present in that moment. There is a natural tendency for us to push it away. When we become spiritual, more spiritual, spiritualized in the way we go through life, We are only too eager to hear the voice of Christ in those around us. To have someone say something that ever so slightly 
changes, alters the way we see something. It's like, oh, yes, I see now. This is a higher standard, a higher way of living our lives. If we are pure of heart, that will be revealed in our attitude towards the wisdom of God that we encounter in the world around us, often in the seemingly common and ordinary things. St. Mark goes on to record a series of interesting events in the first miracle of Jesus' multiplication of the loaves and fish. Now, if we look first at what precedes this miracle, we discover several interesting things. In verse 30 of chapter 6, St. Mark says the apostles rejoined Jesus because he had sent them out. They were teaching and performing miracles. In some instances, the apostles rejoined Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Jesus said to them, Come away to some lonely place all by yourselves and rest for a while. There is something very interesting. We find this in a number of places in the gospel. Jesus constantly, in spite of this pressing public ministry of his, is frequently going off in solitude to pray to the Father, to rest in his spirit. And he is teaching us that we must also go away to a place of solitude, to a lonely place, away from the busyness and activity of the world, and we must retreat with the Father. We must enter into the solitude of our heart and be with God, because it is there where we are refreshed and strengthened. The way St. Mark presents this, it is as if the apostles going off with Jesus to pray for a while comes precisely at the end, as if it is the proper conclusion, the proper finish to all of this activity they've been working in the world. And it's like the proper finish. It's like now we will bring to closure all the busyness of the day by going with the Father and entering into prayer. It is the perfect finish or conclusion where one brings back to the Lord one's service to him and in praise and in thanksgiving and in petition brings to the Father all that we have done. It's not, of course, about us or this work. God, the Father, is the source and end of all that we do and all that we pray also. But this time of solitude and prayer is a preparation also for everything which will follow upon it. It is necessary, this time, this retreat of heart, is necessary. Prayer is necessary for the disciples of Christ. Christ himself, by his own example, reveals that it is this constant union with the Father. It is in this union that he carries out the work of our salvation. Our spirit, our soul, is the principal part of our being, not our body. It is the soul which gives life to the body and not the other way around. The soul is capable of living even if separated from the body, but the body cannot live as separated from the soul. Something very profound happens not only to the soul but also to the body in the rest of prayer. Frequently, we do not understand exactly how important, how necessary, how beneficial the retreat of prayer is to our lives. We tend to think that our strength 
our resiliency is somehow in the body, in our natural being, and it's not so. Prayer, as John Paul II said, it is as important as breathing. To go a day without prayer is like going a day without actually breathing. It is the breath of the life of God in us. It is as if we get in a vehicle and we set our sights on the horizon and we take off driving and we run that car until it's out of gas, till it's dry, till it's broken down, till there's nothing left. We treat our own bodies like machines sometimes. Our bodies receive life from the soul. But we go through life sometimes without refreshing the soul or feeding our soul on God, on the Word of God, and on that union with God. Our soul receives life in this union. And from the life of our soul, our body is enlivened. This is extremely important. It is no accident that God reveals in Scripture that prayer comes at the conclusion of our work in God, and at the same time, it is the first preparation to go back out for our work in God. But we notice when they retreat in prayer, what happens? The people find that they're there, they press in upon them, and they they want their needs tended to. It interrupts, so to speak, it interrupts the prayer of Jesus and the apostles. St. Vincent de Paul speaks about how there are times, as necessary as prayer is, that God sometimes allows our prayer to be interrupted by the pressing needs of the poor around us. And we're speaking, when we talk about the poor, it can be someone who has a crisis, a pressing situation, they need help. And that by our leaving off with prayer, by allowing our prayer to be interrupted, and going to serve the needs of another, when those in fact are real needs, that that itself is prayer. It's a continuation of prayer. It's another kind of prayer. But we delude ourselves to think that we can go through life, we are so busy, we have so much to do, that we never have time to pray. That's from the evil one. That's a false sense. We have to put prayer, we have to make prayer a priority in our lives. God will show us if there are occasional moments where that prayer must be transformed into a different kind of prayer because of some need of someone around us. But there again, it's the attitude of our heart that reveals what our heart's really made of. When we decide that we are going to go and spend time with the Lord in prayer, that perhaps we've set aside a half hour or an hour to be with the Lord, if all of a sudden something pressing, and we know in our hearts when it's something that truly calls us out of prayer as opposed to just an excuse to shorten our prayer, but when it's that, if our heart senses it's like, Oh, Lord! I have to shorten my time with you. We're sad in our heart. We have to make a sacrifice. We sacrifice that precious, intimate time with the Lord in order to serve Him in some other way. Our heart is, our heart is revealing what it's actually made of. But if on the other hand, we're only too happy to have reasons which prevent us from being able to pray because we have so much busy work to do, Our heart there also is revealing that it is not really this desire for close union with the Lord that compels us or drives us during the day. That on the one hand, we know prayer is necessary, but we're only too glad to have excuses not to have to actually go and do it or to be faithful in that prayer life day after day after day, even though the prayer life sometimes becomes dry. Thanks for listening to Dr. George on Real Presence Radio. For more information, 
please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be continuing the miracles of the loaves and fish prefigure the Eucharist, and then she will finish with Jesus' teaching on clean and unclean. Next, we find out in this miracle of multiplication that Jesus says to the apostles, when they don't know how the people are going to be fed, he says, what have you got? He turns to them and asks them to bring forth what you have, what God the Father has placed in your hands. Go and see, he tells the apostles. And they come forward, they have a few loaves, a few fish. It seems very small. And in fact, considering the fact that there are 5,000 people, 5,000 men numbered among the people, not counting wives and children, that's a lot of people. God doesn't need a lot to do powerful things in our lives. What he asks of us is what Jesus asks of his apostles. He says, what have you got? What provisions has the Father already placed in your hands? Bring those to me. So they bring the loaves and fish to him. The next thing that happens is also important. Jesus blesses them. This matter of blessing is so important because the miracle of the loaves and fish prefigures the abundance of the Eucharist. They point to the abundance of the Eucharist, the miracle that God will give the world in the Eucharist. Now, through something seemingly small and meager, the power of God will be present and at work. Through the power in blessing, there is a tremendous power in blessing. Blessing is, as the church teaches, a divine and life-giving action. When we bless our food, for example, we say grace before meals, it is the power and spirit of Christ present in that. How do we begin grace before meals? We begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We say, bless us, bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts, which we are about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. Amen. I am convinced that, and at the end of time we will know this, if we could see what actually happens in that blessing made in faith, in purity of heart, I believe that that blessing transforms the food, the meal, the gathering of those people, of the family of God. It transforms that event. Something powerful is present there. Now, it is not the power of the Eucharist, but in a very small way, it is nevertheless the power of God the Father's blessing on this bounty, on our gathering together, our conversation, our being together. It's a very powerful thing. It is God himself revealing all that takes place leading up to the miracle of the loaves and fish and the blessing. In the Eucharist, of course, we have the blessing of Christ himself, the high priest, in the priest who confects the Eucharist at the altar of God. And it is by Christ's word, because they repeat the words of Christ at the institution of the Eucharist, by Christ's will that this actual transformation takes place. The bread and wine are transformed in their very substance. They are transformed and they become Eucharist. St. Ambrose, in speaking of this, says, The power of the blessing, the blessing of Christ, 
prevails over nature because by the blessing, nature itself is changed. So there is something very powerful that happens in a privileged, unique, and eminent way in the Eucharist. But in every blessing upon earth, when we bless things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is amazing that so many people do not have the faith to believe in the Eucharist, which these miracles of the loaves and fish prefigure and point to. They are real historical events. Even biblical scholars occasionally look at the miracles of the loaves and fish, and they turn them into some kind of symbolic parable storytelling thing. These are real historical events. These are teaching miracles of Jesus. This really happened, that Jesus took the bread and the fish and he multiplied them so that he could fill far more than 5,000 people and there was plenty left over, 12 basketfuls, so that there was enough for all the apostles to distribute. It is interesting that the apostles bring to the table of the Lord, so to speak, the food of blessing and the apostles distribute that to the crowds, just as the apostles come to the table of the Lord in the Eucharist and the apostles, with Christ at work in them, the word and will of Christ, distribute the multiplied bread from heaven. And there is plenty to feed the people of God and with some left over. The Israelites in the desert, when God gives them the manna, which prefigures the Eucharist, they look upon it Again, they see something so simple, so ordinary, so meager, so small, as if it's nothing. And they say, what is this? What is this we're supposed to eat? And Moses says to them, that is the food that God has given you from heaven to eat. There's so many people, Christians in the world, even some Catholics, who look at the Eucharist and they say, what is that? What is that? Because they know that the church is saying something profound, just as Moses said to the Israelites in the desert. This is manna from heaven. This is what God is going to sustain you on. You will live in the desert because of this manna. And they look at it and say, this? What is this? This small white stuff. And he says, it's the bread from heaven. We respond similarly as to how the Israelites responded in the desert. And we ask God, what is this? And it is as if the church is saying, this is the bread from heaven that the Lord has given us to eat. As the prophet Baruch says, Learn where knowledge is, where strength, where understanding, and so learn where length of days is, where life, where the light of the eyes, and where peace. The children of Hagar have no grasp of this. The children of Hagar, of course, do not receive the promise. The disciples who followed Jesus, we find this at the end of chapter 6 of the Gospel of John, that when he teaches on the Eucharist, what is their response? They say, this is intolerable language. This is too hard to believe. And they left them. Many disciples left Jesus that day. Jesus turns to Peter and his apostles and he says, and you too, are you going to leave? And Peter says, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe. They believe that what Jesus just taught about the Eucharist is so. It is eternal life and it is truth. Peter says, we are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. 
And this is the way we must learn to approach the Eucharist. It's as if the Lord is posing to us the same question. And you, what about you? And you too, will you leave? The church asks this of many Christians who cannot, who refuse to believe in the Eucharist. And our answer must be, Lord, to whom else can we go? Shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we believe. This is the amen of the Eucharist that we say before we receive the Eucharist. We are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. And in that, in that faith, we receive the Eucharist of eternal life. At the end of this tremendous miracle, the beautiful miracle, Jesus sends his apostles across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. It's very interesting because Scripture speaks of a singular boat. What Scripture tells us is that he says to precede him, in one translation, to go on ahead of him. In other words, Jesus is going to join them. There is something communicated whereby they expect to join him on the other side. Now, it's amazing because the Sea of Galilee is about 10 miles across. It was also known for the storms that it could throw up, just of a moment. They must have wondered how Jesus was going to meet them on the other side, because there's no other boat. He, in other words, would have to traverse by land, which is even further around, and it's very rugged terrain. Jesus goes then into the mountains to pray. In the fourth watch of the night, this is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus sees them out on the water. He says they were hard-pressed rowing. They were rowing against the storm, which is somehow appropriate because the apostles of Christ often row against the storm. Even in this, do we hear the omniscience of God? Jesus is at least five miles away. It says that Jesus looked out in the middle of the sea and he saw them rowing hard against the storm. He's miles away from them. He sets out, he is walking across the sea. Scripture does tell us that Jesus was going to pass them by. It says he was going to walk on by them. And we say, walk by them. Now, why would he do this? Well, we must remember that a very short time ago, we talked about this in the last lesson, he was out in the sea with them, asleep in the boat. He's already taught them about the stormy sea. He just finished teaching them about that, about his power over the wind and the sea, about his protection of them, that he guards them, that nothing will happen to them, which is outside the providence of God, that even though Jesus seems sleeping or far away from them, he sees them. He knows what's going on. He knows the struggle. Perhaps it was a test of their faith. It says he was going to pass them by. But he sees the struggle and the duress and the pity of God comes out of Jesus. When he sees us struggling and suffering, he's not going to let them drown, of course, but the struggle draws out of Christ this tender love, this help. He rushes to their aid. He lets them know he's there. They think they see a ghost. Scripture says they look out and they're very afraid. They think it's a ghost. They still cannot discern between appearance and and reality. They still cannot see things the way God sees things. This is a theme throughout Scripture. We look at appearances. God tells us human beings look at appearances. Only the spiritual can see the reality that's present there. As St. Mark says, they were utterly and completely dumbfounded because they had not seen what the miracle of the loaves meant. 
They had not seen what the miracle of the loaves meant. Their minds were closed, as St. Mark says. Their minds were closed. So we find ourselves in all of these narratives of Scripture because we see how God is trying to show us the same things he was showing his apostles 2,000 years ago. The crowds that gathered around him in his teachings, he is teaching each of us individually in our hearts. Finally, the fourth question of the lesson is on Jesus' teaching on clean and unclean. And of course, we know that the Pharisees and scribes have come to them. They're complaining because they see Jesus' disciples eating with him, and they have not fulfilled the law, all the prescriptions of the law, washing their hands up to the elbows, sprinkling themselves after they return from the marketplace, eating out of vessels which have been purified. They had particular vessels, cups and pots and, and bronze vessels, dishes and so on, which had to be purified. Everything had to be just so. And as Jesus tells them, he points out that the law they are trying to fulfill is, it is an outward thing. It's something which makes them self-righteous. They are trying to justify themselves through the fulfillment of all these prescriptions, which are little more than a bunch of human traditions. He says, their reverence of me is worthless because their hearts are far from me. What Jesus is teaching about clean and unclean actually places the law, the Old Testament law, and its true footing that the Old Testament laws about cleanliness are about holiness. They are about the purity of heart required to encounter the Lord, to come to the table of the Lord. This is why he speaks, in fact, in the indictment of the Pharisees and scribes recorded in chapter 23 of the Gospel of St. Matthew. He says, Alas for you, Pharisees and scribes, he says, You hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish and leave the inside, the inside of this vessel of which we are, full of extortion and intemperance. You are like whitewashed tombs. You look handsome on the inside, but inside you are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of corruption. You look upright on the outside, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. In other words, we can be very clean on the outside, as the Jews were because they had all of these laws about cleanliness. But inside, they were full of the bones of the dead, of hypocrisy, and of lawlessness. This is what renders a person unclean, not the outside, necessarily. And when he calls us to conversion, Jesus wants us to aim, first and foremost, not at outside works, but at an interior conversion, at a work that goes on interiorly. He says, even you, don't you understand? Can't you see that nothing that goes into someone from outside can make that person unclean? Because it goes not into the heart, but into the stomach and passes into the sewer or latrine. And thus, as scripture tells us, he pronounced all foods clean. Jesus went on, it is what comes out of someone that makes that person unclean. For it is from within, from the heart, that evil intentions emerge. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, malice, deceit, indecency, envy, slander, pride, folly, all these evil things come from within and make a person unclean. So if we are going to purify and cleanse something, we must look into our heart and see what is there, which is displeasing to God. Just as when people gather at a table, a family of persons, 
if someone if someone has been transgressing or offending someone, someone has hurt or violated a person at that table, it is a hypocrisy. It's a lie to sit down at the table and pretend that nothing at all has happened or nothing has gone wrong. The gathering of persons at a table implies a certain kind of intimacy of persons, an agreement of hearts, a trust, a trust and a camaraderie in terms of justice and truth and goodness. So we lie when there is when there is violence in our heart, whereas on the outside we pretend that everything is upright, handsome, clean. Jesus says if your holiness does not surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. It is what is in our heart, therefore, that determines if we are actually clean or unclean before God. The church teaches there is a connection between purity of heart, of body, and of faith. Pure of heart refers to those who have attuned their intellects and wills to the demands of God's holiness, chiefly in these three areas. And it is these areas which we must examine our conscience even before we approach the table of the Lord at Holy Communion, at the Eucharist. Charity, or love, chastity, or sexual rectitude, and love of truth, or orthodoxy of faith. When we approach the Eucharist to say that amen, that amen says, yes, I believe it is true that this is the Lord our God. I believe all he has revealed, has shown us is true. And yes, I live this, I embrace this life of faith in myself. That is what that amen must be. As St. Paul says, if we approach the Lord unworthily with that hypocrisy or lie in our hearts, he says we eat and drink our own condemnation. This is what Jesus is pointing out when he teaches on clean and unclean. That they come to the Lord and they say, why aren't your disciples clean as we are clean? Jesus is saying, you are the ones who are not clean because I see what is in your heart. But my disciples are here at my feet, listening to me, embracing what I say, striving to live it out in their lives and being obedient to me, who is the revelation of the will of the Father. As we approach communion then, let that amen of ours be a clean amen, a total yes to God. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Please tune in next time while Dr. George continues in the Gospel of St. Mark with chapter 7, verse 24 through chapter 9. For further information please visit us online at sacredheartproductions.org.